Hello, friends. Anne here, and this is Overcome with Auntie Anne. Each week, I sit down with a friend to hear her story of overcoming, and we talk about the good, the bad, and everything in between. Before building an international corporation, I went through my own years of defeat, despair, and depression that kept me stuck in a place of darkness. It was only when I learned to share my own story that I started to overcome my past and to find purpose in my pain. I've found incredible freedom in my life, and I'd like for you to discover it for yourself as well. Together, we can overcome. Hello, my friend, and welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us again on this podcast. I love creating this for you, and we have so many more incredible interviews coming your way. We've got musical artist Nicole C., formerly Nicole Mullen. We have the top awarded female comedian Shonda Pierce. We have Linda Randall, Chantal Cooley, Lori Champion, and so many more. But today, we're going to do something a little bit different. Since this podcast is about stories of overcoming, I thought that I'd take an episode or two and share my own story, but I didn't want to just talk for an hour. So I asked my nephew Gentry to join us and interview me. We did an interview together back when we launched my book, Overcome and Lead. It went so well that I wanted to once again have him back for this particular interview. Now, Gentry knows me well. He has my full blessing to ask anything he wants. So I have no idea what he plans on asking me today. But as always, my hope is that hearing my story and how I've overcome it will serve as inspiration to you, my friend. I hope that you remember that no matter how stuck you may feel right now in your pain, blame, and shame, that there is always a way out. Okay, my friend, enjoy this interview. So, hey, Chetri, how are you doing today? Hey, Annie Ann, I'm hey, good. Hey, hey, I am, oh, okay, I'm nervous, but I'm very, ex- <laughs> <laughs> I'm very excited uh, that we're able to do this interview today. And I, I just have a feeling that you're going to dig a little deeper than what we've ever dug before, uh, because that's what you do, and you're really good <laughs> at it, so... Here we go. Let's let's do this. Here we go. Yes. I think it'll be pretty painless for you. I was trying mm-hmm. to think of some questions that maybe you haven't been asked, but you know when you're when you're interviewing someone like you who's probably done thousands and thousands of interviews, I think that's a pretty pretty big ask to think of questions that you have never been asked. So oh, yeah. we'll see how uh, it goes. Oh yeah, I know you well, Chantry. I think you're going to come up with at least one that I've never uh, maybe been asked one. before. Yeah, maybe one. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is good. Okay, so here's what I'm thinking. I know your story, so I think we just start at the beginning and we'll just kind of go in chronological order through some of the experiences you've had and the the trauma that you've experienced and the struggles that you've overcome and see how it goes. So how yeah. does that sound? That sounds great. And I'm ready. Good. All right. <laughs> you were raised in an Amish Mennonite family and you've talked a lot about that. You've written about that. Do you, do you have your earliest memory? Do you know what your earliest memory is? I remember going to church in our 1954 black brand new Mercury. <laughs> so there were at that time, there would have been, um, I want to say six kids 
and mom and dad. And I remember we would all pile into this Mercury. So I do remember that the car was always seemed very full because then my mom had two more kids. And at one time there were all eight of us kids and mom and dad in the car. So on the back floorboard, there was always this hump that you could stand on. I'm not sure what that was. It's the way they built the cars back in the day. And I always wanted to stand on that little hump because if I did, then nobody would mess up my covering. So I remember that and feeling a little cramped. But you know what? The other feeling that I remember clearly is that, wow, we're all together, my whole family in this car. And there was a close, safe feeling that I can, even now, as I think about it, I, I feel that. Here's my disclaimer for this whole interview. I know that people like to hear about the good parts. And I know that every life has wonderful, amazing parts to it. But the point of sharing our struggles, and this is something that you say, is that's when we connect with people. That's when we get to know people. So Mm -hmm. I'm putting that disclaimer out there because I think most of what I'm going to ask you is probably going to sound or, or point towards the more negative, harder parts of life. But we do that so that people can relate to the pain and understand that it's not just all happy go lucky. Mm-hmm. So for you as an Amish Mennonite little girl, what what was the hardest part of your childhood? Well, um, I was the third child of eight. Right after me, I had a brother that was a year and three months uh, born after me. You know, we did the hard work, Gentry. I mean, on the farm, I, I as far back as I can remember, some of my earliest memories, carrying milk for my mom and dad. On We had cows, and I would get up early in the morning and carry milk, pour them in big canisters in our milk room. So the physical part, the hard work that I did was part of growing up. So I can't say that that was hard for me, although it mm-hmm. was hard work, and mm-hmm. I do... Uh, remember that I did not want to go out to the barn early in the morning. The other part of hard work was uh, going out into the garden and hoeing weeds all summer long. I did not want to do that, but, but you just did and it was okay. So that's really not a hardship. So what I'm digging for in my own heart right now is what was the hardest part of my family life when it comes Mm -hmm. to relationships and how we Mm -hmm. interacted with each other. And I think that I would have to move forward just a little bit, just kind of step it up to when I was about 10 years old. It's around that time, nine or 10, that my mom and dad discovered that I was uh, allergic. I was I had allergies and nobody else in my family of eight kids was allergic at all. So I'm the only one that had allergies. And back in the day, it was called, they just, anything, any allergy was called, if you were on the farm, you you had a hay fever. I remember clearly when my mom began telling me that I need, I need to be inside more because of my allergies, my hay fever, and that it's better for me to work inside than it is for me to go outside and help in the farm with the hay and the straw and the be in the barn and all those things. And I, I know that I was kind of disappointed about that because I loved being with my sisters. I have two sisters and five brothers. And my sister was, my one sister was um, two years older, my other sister, four years younger than me. So I'm in the middle of my sister's. And so I want to say that was probably the hardest part about growing up for me, which then throughout the years, I've really understood how that impacted me because it was kind of like my sisters could go outside 
and work and play in the field, <laughs> work in the field. So they became very close. It was just kind of a normal uh, relationship that built between the two of them. And I'm in the house with mom. One of the hardest memories I have is probably by now, maybe I'm 12. They were able to play outside in the snow for hours and in big snowstorms, they could go out and have a great time. And I remember standing at my bedroom window, watching them play and walking and having a good time. And I was not allowed to go outside. Mm. That may sound silly or like, wow, what's the big deal? But I feel like at that time, Gentry was the very first time that I felt the pangs or the pain Mm -hmm. of feeling rejected. Mm -hmm. It was certainly not intentional, but that was my, I would say probably one of the hardest parts of my growing up years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The isolation, the rejection. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What is interesting is you were inside with your mom, which meant you were the ones helping to cook. You were the ones helping to bake. And you're the one who ended up creating a (laughs) soft pretzel, which is a baked good, which led to the Auntie Anne's era. So even, even in that isolation and the rejection, it was almost... I'm, I'm in no way trying to find your silver lining for you, but I just am making the connection between your pain that you felt back then was still serving the purpose for later mm. in your life, which is your phrase out of your pain, your purpose is born. And it's just interesting to see that in childhood, your pain of feeling rejected and isolated, which led you to being inside as a baker mm-hmm. ultimately took you to owning a soft baked good company later in your life. It's like your pain was still serving a purpose even back then. It's, it's pretty crazy, right? Going from a mm-hmm. little homish girl, feeling the rejection in a, in a very small way, uh, creating mm-hmm. this opportunity with my mother to mm-hmm. be the baker and the, and the, and cook. Yeah. And years later, the baker in me, you know, was able then to create mm-hmm. this product that went around the world. It's so crazy. Yeah. So as a kid, we observe things and we internalize them and those become part of how we show up in the world. And then we also are taught things directly from our parents. I'm curious, what did you observe from either your mom or dad that you internalized, uh, good or bad, that affected how you showed up later in life? And what were you directly taught that you internalized, good or bad? I believe being the third of eight, part of me felt like I'm not noticed often and not noticed. But then when my mom took me into the kitchen in in an interesting way, I felt like mom saw me. Her and I then became very close relationally. There's many things that I learned from my parents. They didn't teach us a lot verbally. I mean, I watch parents today and I see them hunker down on their knees in front of their kids and say, you know, explain things to them and say like, now, do you understand? Do you hear what mommy is saying to you? I'm watching these parents and I'm like, wow, that's, that's a whole different world. My mom and dad rarely taught us a lesson verbally. (laughs) And, you know, it's so interesting because much later in life, my therapist, uh, Dr. The late Dr. Richard Dobbins said that the greatest form of teaching is role modeling. It said, it's not what you say, but it's what they see, what your children see you do. That is the greatest form of teaching and training. So I guess mom and dad didn't do it all wrong, you know, 
But mom and dad, through their life, they taught me one of probably one of the most important lessons that I took with me uh, in life was to work hard, do a job, do it very well. Because uh, if you do it, see, mom's line was do it with will, do it with might. Things done by halves are really never done right. So it's kind of like if, if you have a task, do it the best that you can the first time, then you don't have to do it over again. So that's one thing that I remember clearly. Taking that thought uh, into my teen years, into my marriage, into being a mom, being a businesswoman, and even today, when I do a little task, whether it's a small task or a big, big task, if it's a task that I'm very comfortable with or a task that I'm trying to figure out, like, for example, technology, <laughs> I have I, that thought rings in my mind. Whatever is before you, do it with all of your, do it with will, do it with might. And so that's one thing that served me well. I feel like one other thing that mom and dad taught us that faith, family, God was really, really important. Loving God and loving others was the theme. And if you're going to love others, mom always would, mom would say, we need to love each other in the home and then we can love each other outside the home. So she taught us that even though there was eight of us kids and we always felt like we you know, I guess we fought and argued and I don't know, I'm sure we did. I don't remember much of that. But in spite of all of that, mom wanted us as kids to love each other. And, and so the one line that mom always said, I feel like this, this has served me in for many years, actually in a negative way, which my mom, God bless her. She passed away 10 years ago, sweetest mom on earth. All of us kids, we never hurt her yell or scream at any single one of us. But this is the line that she said all the time. He would say, little children, love each other. Do not give each other pain. When one speaks to you in anger, do not answer them again. And at the time, I know what mom meant. But in today's language, and <laughs> what you would say, just suck it up. I mean, if somebody's mean to you, mm. just take mm. it up, take it in and don't respond to that. Mm. What it taught me was it, it gave me the, uh, I, have, I, I did not have the ability as a, as a wife and then a mother and then through my own pain and trauma, I didn't have the vocabulary. I wasn't trained. I wasn't taught how mm-hmm. to respond to pain of any kind. And it mm. really meant if things don't go well, or if you're not happy, or if you're sad, or you're angry, or someone's mean to you, just be nice anyway, and don't say mm. anything. Yeah. Later on in life, I truly felt like I was silenced. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I understand where, where grandma was coming from and you have eight kids and you got to do something to keep the peace, but it's interesting (laughs) how those things really do. They Mm. get settled into you and, and all eight of you, probably it settled into you in a different way. And and for you, the way it showed up is I'm just supposed to take whatever happens to me. So let's move, let's move forward into some of the, the more traumatic times in your life. You eventually got married to the love of your life, Jonas Byler. You guys had two really wonderful little girls, Luana and Angie. Just paint a picture real quick of what your young marriage was. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, my mom and dad were not perfect by any stretch, but they were good parents. And uh, because of that, I really wanted to be, my dream was to find my own husband and be married and have a family. That's all I ever really wanted in life, you know? So it was a pretty simple and very doable because that's what every little Amish girl did. You just get married at a very young age. I was 19 and Jonas was 21. And uh, he was a handsome dude and uh, he was an Amish guy that knew how to work and he loved God. And wow, we got married and 
we were just in love and it was everything that I even imagined and more. Uh, Jonas was a very quiet man, but the two of us, and I was, uh, I was a very, I was a talker and I'm always the, I was always the one who brought up anything in our marriage when it came to, we need to talk about this. It was pretty much, I was the one that would bring it up or whatever. But for the most part, we were able to resolve our stuff because there wasn't that much to deal with, you know, like we didn't have a major adjustment. And when we had Luana, Wow. I mean, that was the proudest moment of my life. I I, I couldn't believe I'm a mom. And uh, we had left the Amish Mennonite church and we were now in a, a more of a conservative Mennonite church, which is to the rest of the world that does make any difference. But but we were moving forward in our lives. And sure, we had some issues, but we just worked through this stuff without any 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 glitches, really. So we had Luana and we're happily mom and dad. And she brought so much joy into our home, was a good good, good baby. And then we wanted another baby and Angela was born. During that time, again, a very happy time. We began, to, we were very involved in a, uh, a church that we found ourselves building right in the middle of Lancaster County, our very own church. And it was a it was a charismatic church. And somehow we got caught up in the 19, early 70s charismatic movement and once again, it was another step into a whole other spiritual world that we knew nothing about. And it was so exciting, so fun. And just um, we were youth pastors and life was full. And our two our two daughters, I just thought truly that life was going to be that way for the rest of my life, that God yeah. is good and my family's great. And I can't believe that I'm living the dream. Yeah. So when did that change? It all changed too quickly. Yeah. But that all changed um, September the 8th, 1975. And I was at that time, I would have been 26. Hmm. I had been a good girl. <laughs> I wasn't a perfect wife or mom, but I was a decent mom and a pretty good wife and everything was good. And I just assumed I, I, that God would always just bless us with all good things and that nothing bad would ever happen to us. I never would have imagined anything bad would happen to us, but it did, September the 8th. We lived on my dad's farm. We lived in a double-wide trailer. My mom and dad lived about, I don't know, maybe 100 feet, maybe 200 feet maybe from our double-wide. And between us, there was a barn. And my dad was a stonemason at that time and my sister was um, working for my dad and she would haul, load and unload sand for him. Every morning she knew the girls were around there and she would always look for them and she was always very careful. But that particular morning, Angie went up to my mom's house a little earlier than usual as Fi was packing the tractor, the bobcat up with a load of sand. And she looked behind her to see if anyone was behind her and um, didn't see anyone. But when she moved forward and with the, the the bobcat, she saw Angie in front of the bobcat, and she had accidentally run over her, and Angela was killed instantly that morning. Was anything going through your head when Angie left your house that morning? Prior to that morning, I had had dreams. I had three dreams, and every dream I had was about somebody dying in mm. my family. The first time I had the dream, I remember telling Jonas and and we actually just decided it probably doesn't mean anything. And he encouraged me just to let it go, you know, and so I did. And then the second time I had the dream, 
I told him again, I remember that at that point, we, we prayed and asked God to keep our family safe. And honestly, when I thought if I would think about it too long, I would think about one of my siblings, uh, mm. something maybe happening to one of them. Mm-hmm. I couldn't bear the thought of that mm-hmm. in itself, but that's what I thought. I didn't think about my mom and dad. I didn't mm-hmm. think about my children, but I thought maybe one of my siblings. Mm. And then I had the third dream, same thing. The, the dreams are all the same. And that morning, though, I was I was um, really, um, I was concerned. Jonas had already gone for work. And I, I didn't tell him about it, but I went over to my sister-in-law's house. They lived right next to us in a trailer as well. And I told her about my dream. She started crying and she said, Ann, I had the same dream last night. Wow. And we, we just were stunned. Hmm. And I think at that time, Gentry, I felt like God was forewarning me for, for what reason. I can't tell you. I don't know mm-hmm. why. Yeah, but her and I decided that morning that we're gonna. So we prayed and we asked God to give us just to give me peace, that I wouldn't worry about it. Like, mm-hmm. and we again prayed for safety over our, over our family and that that God would just give me peace because obviously I was a little bit just I, I can't say distraught, but I was very upset as upset as I could be in those days. And you know, I left her house and I had complete peace. But every time the phone rang from that point on, and that was probably about a week before Andy was killed, every single time the phone rang, I thought about my dream, but I wasn't worried or anxious, or, but I thought about it. And so, yes, in that way, yeah. I yeah. felt like maybe something was going to happen, but honestly, yeah. I did not worry about it. So you told us what happened, but when did you find out what happened? Okay, so that particular morning, I was uh, we had company at our house, and we had guests, and I had made breakfast, and we were all sitting around the table. And as we stood to leave, my dad specifically prayed that morning, and he just said, God, please uh, just take care of all of us today. Um, hmm. Just keep us safe from any harm today. And they all left, and mom and dad went back to their house. Jonas took our guests and they all got in the car and they left to, he took them back to the church and I'm standing at the door, waving goodbye to the guests as, as I'm standing there and she sneaks out beside me and she uh, walked across the yard and I saw the car leave and I saw Angie leave and I'm Hmm. watching Angie go. And I'm thinking, should I call her back and change her diaper (laughs) And put her dress on, dress her for the day, or do I just let her go because my kitchen's a mess, hmm. and I'll just call mom and tell her she's on the way. That is what I always did, but I usually had her dress before she went to my mom's house. And I, I stood there and I watched her go, thinking, I'll call mom as soon as I see her get safely around the corner. I never said goodbye to her. I never called her back. She went uh, toddling. <laughs> she was 19 months old and always walked very fast. And she was walking to my mom's house. And I turned around and went to my phone. That was by, in those days, we had a phone on the wall, the kitchen phone by the wall. And I picked up the phone to call my mom. And when I did, I heard this horrible screaming and shrieking. It was, it was, unlike anything I had ever heard in my life. 
Hmm. And immediately, it's like, I, I knew, I, I just immediately, I said, oh God, not Angie. Hmm. And I remember just, um, I just pulling my hair and just kept saying, God, not Angie, hmm. not Angie. And when I got myself together, I just walked to the door. And as I walked to the front door, my dad was at the very same place where Angie was when I saw her last. My dad was carrying her and just wailing. And all he could say was, I believe she's dead. And he was screaming, I believe she's dead. I believe she's dead. Hmm. And I just stood there. I didn't run to my dad. I didn't, I was like frozen. So was anything going through your head? I, I guess I thought, of, I mean, I thought about my dreams and I, I, I was confused. Like, I can't understand mm-hmm. if, and I say, if, if God was trying to tell me something, well, <laughs> I didn't understand. I thought it was going to be one yeah. of my siblings. So I think immediately that was my thought. Like, I cannot believe it's Angie that I had my dream about. Yeah. She's too, she's too little. Yeah. And also, you know, when, when there's tragedy, you always blame yourself for something, right? There's always something, you know, I would have, should have, could have, I mean, if I would have, and my thought immediately was if I would have called her back, Mm. then she would still be here with me right now at Mm. that moment. So guilt was a very real part of your Immediately, process. immediately, if I would have been a better, if I would have been a better mom, if I would have been paid Ugh. attention, if I would have thought, if I would have done what I should have done, like any good mother would do, then she'd still be here. Yeah. That that was my immediate, you know, just immediately that popped in my head. So it's, isn't it interesting? Yeah. That That would be my first thought. But I guess it's because. It was too soon. Yeah. It wasn't time. It wasn't time for her. She was the joy of our life. And immediately, um, so I went from uh, overnight, I went from being a happy mama to a wailing mama, you know, that just did not understand. None of it made any sense to me. Of course not. Tragedy never makes sense, you know. It never makes sense to me. And yet we try to figure it out. That's beyond our human comprehension. So so going into shock, and I, I remember my dad brought her and laid her on the floor because he, he, he didn't know what to do. He didn't know what to do with her. I do know I didn't want to hold her. Hmm. What, why didn't you want to hold her? I didn't know how to hold a baby that was dead. I, I, didn't, oh, I didn't know gosh. what am I going to do with her. If I pick her up, what am I going to do? I don't know where to take her. I don't know what to do for her. Yeah. I can't make her okay. But I remember I didn't want to hold her. So you knew, you knew even then that she, I knew she was that gone. she was gone. I knew. And I knew when I heard this, the screams that she was gone. And it's kind of like God whispered to me and said, I, I forewarned you of this. I I let you know this may happen. But, you know, on the other hand, I'm like, 
like, wow, okay, no, you didn't let me know it was going to be Angie. But in his grace, in his grace, you know, accidents happen, Gentry. It's not God's fault, but God knew it was going to happen. And in his grace, I mean, if he would have told me it was Angie, uh, that would have been unbearable. You know what I'm saying? That part of my story can be very whatever, you know, and I've, I've heard people say things that, that made me feel really guilty about like even dreaming, having that dream. And like, if I would have prayed hard or if I would have, if I would have As said if praying right harder prayer, would have saved her. That that's what I mean. I, yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I don't understand that, but I, I, I do know my dreams were real. And I do know when she was killed before I even saw or heard and before I, yeah. as soon as I heard this, I knew it was that she was gone. In my mother, my mama heart, you know, yeah. we're attached to our kids. We're, we know what's going on in our kids' lives. And she yeah. was gone. I knew that. Yeah. So when my dad didn't know what to do with her and he knew I didn't want to hold her, he, I didn't tell him that, but I just, I, I just yeah. couldn't pick her up. I couldn't. Yeah. He laid her down on the grass. And by now, my brother and my, and my f- nieces and nephews who were, they'd all been together, playing together and everything. They were all, everybody was around there. There's probably six or eight of us by now. And so I just, the only thing I needed to do was scoop her up and pick her up and run with her. I, I, I wanted to run somewhere with her, but I didn't know where to run. But instinctively, I knew then that I needed to, to go, go to the clinic, which was about five minutes away. And I didn't tell my dad. I just ran with her and he ran after me and I ran in, uh, up to their place, sat in the car and my dad and he and I then drove hmm. to the clinic. And all the way to the clinic, Chantry, I, I didn't want to, I, I, I didn't want to look at her because again, mm-hmm. I mean, I knew she wasn't breathing. I knew that she was, mm-hmm. was gone, but it, it's as if, if I look at her, acknowledge, then I will, then I have to acknowledge and admit that she's mm-hmm. gone. Mm-hmm. So I kind of felt like if I don't look at her, then I'm somewhat denying, I guess, that she's actually not, not here anymore. Yeah. Was there a moment when you did acknowledge it or accept it? I mean, I, I think all the way to the clinic, I, again, it was a five minute drive. Thankfully we were close when mm. I was going there. I, I looked at her once, maybe twice. I, I, I know that, I mean, I mean, I knew she was gone, but I thought that when we get to the clinic, maybe the doctor will, maybe there is something they can do. So I walked into the clinic and I, again, I'm, I'm in total shock. So I'm not crying. I'm not freaking out. I'm not wild. I'm not, I'm mm-hmm. cool. So I'm calm as a cucumber. I'm just calm. So I walked You're into in the shock, clinic. Probably. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So I walked in. It's around nine o'clock in the morning by then. And I laid her on the, the counter and the nurse behind the counter just, I looked at her and I said, I think she's dead. And she looked at me and she's hurried off to get a doctor. And they took me back into a room with Angie. Again, I'm by myself. My dad was parking the car and I walked back to the room where they laid her on the bed. And so when the doctor came in, I really felt like, at that time, I honestly, I felt a little bit of hope, like, oh, mm. okay, this is doctor. And I think that maybe, maybe he, he will tell me there's something they can do for her. And so he looked at her for just a, a minute or two. And, and then he uh, looked at me and, and just gently covered her with a sheet. And I'm like, mm. that, that was probably, that was the moment that I, and he looked at me and said, 
there's nothing that we can do. She's gone. Even then, I, I knew that was true, you know, the nurse that came in with him. Um, so he left, and it was her and I. And um, she just, the nurse just held me in her arms. And and then at some point, she left me, and it was just me and Angie in the room. Jonas, back in the day, we didn't have cell phones, you know, so it right. took him probably 20 minutes before he got there. And then when he came, he was my fixer man, you know always was. And, mm. and I remember saying to him, I said, "Hunt, you know, I, I believe, <laughs> I believe that God can do anything. And I believe that if you will pray for Angie, that he could bring her back to life. But I remember what he said to me. He said, "Hunt, you know, we could pray. We could ask God to Bring her back to us. But why would we do that? Why would we ask him to bring her back to this world that's filled with pain? And so I'm thinking about that now, Chantry. It's kind of like I had no idea what pain was. And and yet he prayed and asked and said to me, No, why would we ask God to bring her back? this world where there's so much pain but he had lost a brother four years before that so he he kind of knew what it meant to grieve he he knew what it was like to grieve so that's what he was referring to i guess you just said you didn't know pain you didn't know grief you didn't know trauma until this moment so you didn't know what to do with it so what what were the days the weeks the months like for you after Angie passed away. Well, initially, um, the very first day, as soon as as soon as we got back from the clinic, my mom met me in the at the end of the walkway, and my mom told me that she said to me, "Anne, Fi thinks that you're angry with her and that you will never forgive her." So that was one of my first. So number one was accepting the fact that Angie's is gone. Mm-hmm. And then number two, I felt like I wanted to take care of my sister. Mm. And I remember feeling like I have to be strong for her. Like I can't fall apart. That was my first thought when I, Mm. and as I walk into the living room where my sister was sitting on the couch in a fetal position, when I looked at her, she had a pillow over her face, and mom went over to her and gently said to her, Fi, Anne's here. She just pulled the pillow down over her eyes and looked at me. I mean, the, the look in her eyes, I will never forget. They were just totally, totally wild. And I'm thinking, who is this? Who is she mm-hmm. now? Hmm. And and how will this impact her? Because Angie was her little, she was her favorite little girl. She was mm. planning a wedding in six weeks and Angie was going to be her flower girl. So in that moment, Chantry, I, I had to become strong and I had to pretend. And that's when I learned the art of pretending. And, and yet mm. I, I don't know what else I should have or could have done at that moment. So immediately I told her if I was okay. 
it's okay. It's okay. I'm not mad at you. I told her I there's nothing to forgive because <laughs> I know it was an accident. I will never hold it against you. Never. Because mm-hmm. you're my sister and you're my friend. But little did we know that day, Gentry. Little did we know. We knew nothing. We knew nothing. But wow, that changed our lives so completely. When it comes to understanding pain, trauma. Yeah. And for me to actually pretend that I'm okay. Yeah. I don't know. And that's what you did. You pretended, right? I mean, you went to church. You, how you doing? I'm fine. Hey, listen. Hey, listen. (laughs) She was buried on a Thursday. And on Sunday morning, my sisters and I always sang at church together every Sunday morning. And that Sunday morning, we went to church and we sang together. So why pretend? Why was that your go-to? I say that not as a a trying to make you feel guilty. I say that as like for people in the middle of it who feel like that's the go-to. Why, why is that? Well, now that is a very hard question. And, um, and nobody asked me that question before. So (laughs) well done. (laughs) I didn't, I didn't know how to say, I didn't know how to talk about it. Number one, I didn't know how to talk about it. Number two, being a peacemaker, I really wanted Phi to be okay. I didn't want to let her know how bad I was feeling because I am I was completely devastated, in shock, trauma, in trauma, obviously. But I didn't want her to know how sad I was right then because yeah. that would only make her feel worse. You're pretending, one, because you just didn't know how to talk about it. Because who knows correct. how to talk about trauma until you Anyone. go through trauma. That's correct. And then two, you're saying you were a peacemaker. And if you let people know how you actually felt, then they would have to deal with that. And it was no longer just your burden to carry. It would be theirs to carry as well. Initially, that was my first response. You know, my first thought initially. Mm -hmm. And then as people began to come into the home back in the, in the Amish Mennonite community, it's, you know, when someone dies, when there's a tragedy or whatever, people come, they come to your house, they clean your house, they mow your lawn, they cook your food, they do whatever for three days. And so that began to happen in our, in, in, in our place. And so as people came, I began to feel, you know, the love and the compassion and the care And I began to cry and I couldn't stop crying. I mean, it was just the tears kept flowing and I kept thinking this was the very first day. And I'm, it was overwhelming the love and the compassion, the care and all the things that people began to do. And people gave us money and cards and, you know, so that all of that gentry was kind of like, I mean, it was so comforting and it was so, I felt like I was in a balloon, like I'm in this. I'm in this very safe place now with all these people around us and they all care about us. They all love us. They're all supporting us and I can do this, but yeah, that all changed. Did you grieve in your private moments? Mm -hmm. So what did you pretend in your public moments, but grieve in your private moments? Perfect. Well said. Absolutely. 100%. Let me just tell you a little story about, so here's Luana. She was now five at that time. 
and she she'd been there. The funeral was being planned. We went over to see her body. Her uh, for the first time before the funeral, they had prepared her body and told us we can come. And so we went, uh, Jonas and I, and Luana and your mom. I remember going into the funeral home and I saw her body in the casket. Like as I entered the door, it was maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know, 30, 40 feet from me. I started to run and Jonas grabbed me. And he said, "Hun, let's just stop for a minute. And it just, let's walk together and let's walk slowly. That was, that was an incredible moment. Just, um, wow. She, she's really, she's really gone now. And as we left that night, Luana started crying. She said, mommy, can we, can we take Angie with us? And I said, Mm. no, no, we can't. She said, does she have to stay here all alone? And the funeral director was right there with us. And he said, Hey, he knelt down and looked at Luana in her face. And he said, Luana, we're going to watch over Angie tonight. She's not alone. She'll be just fine. I mean, the comfort that people think about giving in times of grief is so, so, so important. And there are ways to comfort that are so easy to do. Yeah. And one of the easiest ways to comfort someone is not say anything, just be there and give them a hug. That's yeah. it. Yeah. And that's what that funeral director did for us. That Yeah. Night. You eventually got to a point where you did feel like you needed someone to help you process mm-hmm. through yes. this grief. Yes. So how long after Angie's death did you seek help? For four months at least, I cried silently. Like when Jonas was at work, I would cry all day. And if somebody came to the house to visit me, I would always wipe my tears. And I just I, I just did not want to cry in front of someone. I I don't know what that was all about, except it's what I was taught, I guess. So yeah, I I... I wept alone. I was fine on the outside when I was in public. But at night was the worst time for me. I, I didn't want to go away, but we kept living. I mean, we just kept doing life. So we did go away in the evenings, but I always wanted to come home before the sunset. I never Why told that? Jonas that. I, I honestly, I think that the evening, the nighttime, when it got dark, I just had this feeling of, uh, I mean, I guess what, the way I would describe it now, I didn't understand it then, but it was, I, I was anxious. Uh, I was, I didn't want to go to bed because I always kept feeling like I, I, I needed to take care of Angie. I wanted to, I knew I couldn't tuck her in. And there was something mm. about getting ready for bed that, and yeah. going to bed that just was so unsettling to me. And I knew if I came home, I was, we were all going to go to bed and I just wanted to, I would always wonder I knew Angie was in heaven, you know, but I always wondered, is somebody tucking her in tonight? And that would just bring a flood of tears, but I would hold them inside until everybody was sleeping. And then I would go on the couch and, and weep alone. So you were doing that for a long time then? Again, I was pretending the whole way through pretending I'm okay. Yes. And so, so then four or five months later, I remember one night I was out on the couch and I just got on my knees and I just was crying quietly, of course, mm-hmm. and asking God to, um, like, Lord, you know, I need somebody that I, I need to talk to somebody. I, I have to talk about this. I can't hold it in any longer. I was just, I was going deeper and deeper in my grief. And I asked God specifically for someone to talk to. The next time I went to church, which was the next day, I believe it might've been on a Saturday night and went to church that night, the next day and the next evening. 
And um, so my pastor came to me as I was um, kneeling by the altar and just there, that was one place that was a safe place for me. And I know that I could always go to the altar and, and just weep silently or quietly, or just talk to God there. And I felt very safe there. But that particular time, my pastor came and said to me that he'd like to, you know, talk to me. And if I would come to see him in the morning at his office, that I would, you know, to come see him in the morning. So I remember feeling at that moment, like, wow, he noticed that I'm sad. <laughs> like as if that should have surprised me. Right. But, uh, but he noticed and he wants to talk to me. It, it was uh, amazing to me. And I he thought, made you wow. feel seen. Yeah, that's right. Chandra. Absolutely. Did you have a relationship like a good relationship, friendship with the pastor before this? Yes, very. I mean, everybody loved him and our, our, most of the kids called, called him. And I, I can't even say it, but it's spelled P-A-P-P-A-W. <laughs> you may say it. Yeah, that's right. Pat-paw. That's correct. Pat-paw. That's correct. Something like that. Yeah. So everyone um, loved so, him. You had a good yeah. relationship with him. Yeah. He was someone you trusted. 100%. He proved his trustworthiness to you by how? I've known him for only four years, about five years. Um, I knew him. I don't know. I had no reason not to trust him. Mm-hmm. We were together. We were in church all the, all the time. I mean, normal back in the day. And we were very active in the church and we did lots of stuff together. I mean, we had outings, we had picnics, we had just, it's just life was all about being in church and being around people. And he was always yeah. around. So you decided to go talk to him because he said, if yes, you I did to talk. So yes, I did. Did you open up to him in that first? Yes, yes I did. And yes, I did. And you know, what's interesting when I, I thought I didn't know how to talk, you know, mm-hmm. but I was surprised that I was able to unload. Like I was, I I can talk like, wow, I was, uh, I was was able to uh, talk about how I'm feeling, which surprised me. Yeah. And as, as we continue to talk, uh, of course I talked to him about my distance with Jonas. I mean, that was my, that was my biggest next to Angie's death. My next biggest burden was, I'm disconnecting from my best friend, my husband, someone that I love dearly. I don't know how to, I don't know how to connect anymore. Yeah. And that was a sad for me, but I understood, thought I understood why, you know, but yeah. during the course of that conversation, we talked about Jonas and he was, um, he told me then that, well, Jonas would never be able to meet all of my needs again, because a tragedy like this would, you know, is it, it will be impossible to reconnect and, that Jonas could not meet my needs, but that he could, he probably could as a pastor. I can meet as a spiritual leader, you know, I, I can meet your needs. What did you think about that? Well, I didn't know what he meant by that. Okay. I I think that I'm, I, I think that I thought that, Oh, okay. So we can get together and we can talk this through. Okay. That's, Mm -hmm. that's what I thought. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah, I do know. That's what I thought, but I didn't know what he meant. Yes. I didn't know what he meant. So was he the first person that you can remember that said, if you need to talk, I'm here for you? Wow. Yes. I can't think of anyone else, but that's not to say yeah. somebody didn't. 
Yeah, I'm say, sure people said you know, I'm here people, for you, but yeah, people would always say, "Let us know if there's something you need," or you know, and that's one thing you don't want to say to people in grief or trauma. Let me know when you need something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just I, need to I'm do guilty. something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not the pro at that. I mean, I'm guilty of that as well. But nowadays, yeah, I don't too. anymore. I I catch myself. Yeah, and try not to say that, and I try to think of ways that I might be able to, you know, yeah. help a friend or. Yeah. Do other things without them asking. So, yeah. Yeah. So you're in this session, you're opening up to him. First person you're talking to, he's saying things like your best friend, your husband is not going to be able to, yes. to meet your needs anymore, but he's there for you. You're thinking, okay, he's someone I can trust. I t- can talk to, but that's when things started to take a turn for the worst. Okay, my friend, there is so much more of my story to share, and I promise there is a good ending, so please come back to hear the rest in the next episode. We'll pick up right where we left off. I want to remind you, my friend, that you can overcome any obstacle if you're willing to be vulnerable, confess to a friend, and trust the process. You have a story, and your story matters. Until next time, thanks for listening, and keep overcoming. Thanks for listening to Overcome with Auntie Anne. I hope that you feel inspired, encouraged, and know that you are not alone. If you liked the episode, please leave us a review and share it with your friends. You can find me on Instagram at Auntie Anne B or Facebook. Until next time, choose well and choose to overcome.